that you dwell with us by your Spirit. We sense your presence this morning. We lift you up. We need you. You are the only Savior. May your name be glorified in this place and in our lives. Amen. Please be seated. Today we start a new series, uh, and before I start, I'm going to dismiss the kids. So boys and girls, uh, this is your opportunity to head on out to Kids Church, and your parents' opportunity to say, see you later. Okay. But we are starting a new series today um, on the letter to the Hebrews. Um, I don't believe I have ever preached through the book of Hebrews before. So uh, it's a new one for me, too. I've certainly read Hebrews many times and uh, enjoyed many of the verses from Hebrews, um, but never done a series. And uh, it's interesting, the Lord just kind of laid that on my heart, and I think it really was because, as I'm studying now, I realized the connection, okay? Uh, as we went through the Upper Room Discourse and uh, heard the heart of Jesus as he shared his final words with his disciples, um, what we read in Hebrews uh, as we go into this section uh, today and in the weeks to come is all really continuing what we've thought about before, as Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the only hope of the world. We, we sung about it this morning. And uh, today, our, our topic is the superiority of the Son. You know, Hebrews uh, does seem to be a book uh, that we often quote from, and, and we know individual passages, but we do rarely study it as a whole. Uh, J. Ramsey Michaels in the Cornerstone Biblical Commentary says this, Hebrews remains something of a sleeping giant a neglected tour de force within the New Testament canon. It is undeniably one of the most difficult New Testament books, and whether in spite of that or because of it, one of the most rewarding. With that in mind, I must tell you, I enter this series sober-mindedly, asking the Lord teach us, to honor the study of his word, and, and certainly desiring that we as the community of believers here grow deeper in our walk with God. Now, Hebrews is a letter or an epistle, um, but you know, it doesn't really look like that. When you start reading this letter, it doesn't sound like a letter. I mean, when you read Paul's letters, they always start off with a greeting, they always start off with him identifying himself as the author and his comments to those that he's writing to. You don't find that in the beginning here of this book. So it starts more like a treatise, but you'll see as we read through it uh, and study through it that definitely it is a letter to the church. Many over the years uh, have kind of said that Paul was the writer uh, you'd be hard to find a current uh, Bible scholar that would say that's the fact. Um, the writing style just is not 
Paul's style. There's certainly Pauline evidences in it, so whoever was writing it probably had some influence from Paul. Uh, but it is, we don't know who wrote it. <laughs> There's been all kinds of speculation. Um, most recently, I was in a, uh, a seminar related to this book, and uh, the, uh, the, the teacher um, gave a lot of possibilities, but again, didn't say this is the one. Uh, they tended to lean toward Apollos, and I'm hearing more and more of that from some people today, but we don't know. Um, some have said possibly Luke, some have said Barnabas, all right, I've heard uh, even Jude, Clement of Rome, and some have even said possibly Priscilla, would that be something? Yeah, that would shake us up, wouldn't it? <laughs> all right, uh, but nobody knows for sure. But we do know it is part of the canon. Um, God has established it through his church and through his inspiration of the Holy Spirit to be included as a holy book, part of the Bible, the 66 books. So as we read it, we know it's given by God. We know it's his word. We know that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what we need to know. <laughs> And so that's where we go from today. Now, the audience for this book was to those who would understand the Old Testament, uh, most likely converted Jews in Rome, uh, a group probably of house churches in the early 60s A.D. Now, the church in Rome, like most churches <laughs> at that time, uh, was begun following what took place at Pentecost as uh, God's Spirit came upon the church and Peter proclaimed the gospel, and many were saved, and then went back to their homes. And so those who had gone to uh, Jerusalem from Rome returned home and began meeting as the church. Uh, the believers there had demonstrated courage and endurance, but by the time this letter was written, apparently through what we read and the directions of the author here, there seems to have been... Uh, of an issue of the spiritual fervor of some having grown cold and their theological perspective being skewed. Uh, some had even abandoned Christ in the church. Probably, as I mentioned, was written 60 A.D., uh, preceding the, uh, the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and was during the time of increased persecution in Rome under Nero. Uh, 60 A.D. was when uh, Rome burned, of course, Nero uh, tried to blame the Christians for that, and there was much persecution that took place. Now, the message of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus. Now, remember that as we go through this book, okay? That's the message. Jesus is superior to anything and everything that has ever taken place. God's uh, working in the Old Testament was all to prepare for his son. Um, he is the fulfillment of all things. And we're going to get a taste of that today in just the first four verses. And, uh, but that's the theme. Jesus was faithful, and in him too we can be faithful to God and each other. So the theme is the superiority of Jesus means that we should stand firm in our faith. So this first message of this series, as I mentioned, is titled The Superiority of the Son. And so as we begin today, 
uh, I want to read with us the first four verses of chapter 1, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance, and through the son, he created the universe. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. This shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their name. Amazing content in just four verses. Actually, uh, have at least seven points today. So, even though it was short last week, not going to be short today. <laughs> this first verse uh, directs our attention to God speaking. God speaking in the past, and God speaking in the present. Long ago, as it says, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. God has been faithful throughout time since the creation of humanity to make himself known. He has not left us even though we left him. In the garden, of course, the intent was for that wonderful relationship, the perfect connection between man and God to continue But God was not surprised at our failure. And so he already had in place the promise of a Messiah. And he already was intentional to continue a connection and relationship. Not rejecting us, not leaving us to our own demise, but providing for us redemption. His intention at all times. And he has revealed himself, of course, through dreams and visions in the Old Testament and and, uh, the ability of prophets particularly to uh, be able to speak the word of God, to to hear from him. Remember, they didn't have the writings. They were the writings. (laughs) Okay, so the prophets spoke the word of God, and that's what the writer here refers to. Uh, Peter wrote about God speaking through the prophets. In 2 Peter 1, 19-21, he says this, You must pay close attention to what the prophets wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place. Now listen to this, he says, Until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. (laughs) The prophets were pointing to Jesus. And he says this also, Above all, you must realize That no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. And so even as we read this section of Scripture, we also are reminded what Peter says, that this is the word of God to us. And so the writer of Hebrews 
then goes on to say, now in these final of days, God has spoken to us through his son. All of the prophetic words, all of the previous revelations from God now find their consummation in the son. As we read earlier, or it was read to us at the beginning this morning, the passage from John chapter 1 about Jesus being called the Word. God speaks to us as His own Son has been sent to be our Savior. God has revealed Himself in completeness to us in Jesus. If you want to know God, you will know Him in Jesus Christ. All of the Scriptures point to Him. And so next, the writer of Hebrews, right in these first few verses, gives us seven statements about Jesus the Son. Very significant that there are seven. Why? Because to the Jewish believers, the number seven would have great significance. Seven is the number of perfection, representing God himself. God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And the seventh day is blessed and holy. There are seven Hebrew words in Genesis 1-1. There are seven paragraphs in Genesis 1-2, marked by evening and morning. And throughout the scriptures, the use of seven is the indication of that which is complete and is identified with the perfection of God. So we will find seven statements here about the Son. And what we'll be talking about next week as we continue in Hebrews chapter 1 There are actually seven references from the Old Testament that point to the Son. So the author here is identifying with this uh, audience that would understand the importance of seven. So the seven statements about Jesus is this confirmation of Jesus being God. Now the first of the seven is that God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. Everything from God is truly everything. (laughs) If I tell you I give you everything I know, that's going to be limited. But if God gives you everything, you will truly have everything. All that exists ever. And he says he gives that to the Son. You see, the writer here is making it very clear That Jesus, the Son of God, is truly God himself. (laughs) Now we wrestle with that, I know, the Trinity is such a hard thing to fully grasp. But Jesus, the Son, of course, is the second person of the Trinity. He is fully God. And as God has given Jesus everything promised to him as an inheritance, Jesus owns it all. Everything is his. You know, you and I are his even before we let him be Lord of our lives. He will be the final judge of everyone because he really owns us all. And everything we see in this world, he owns. Often we think that uh, we possess different things, don't we? I mean, we think what's in here is ours. It isn't. There's nothing really that we possess that we really possess. 
because it's all his. And until we get to a place where we recognize that, we're, we're not knowing all that God intends. We're, we're trying to operate with authority that we don't have. We're trying to uh, live a life with power that's not ours. We're, we're trying to do something we just can't do. Jesus is Lord of all. The writer here in Hebrews is, probably has in mind Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, as he wrote this, when we read in that passage, Only ask, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole world as your possession. God has given it to Jesus. It's an interesting and challenging thought that the triune God, which Jesus is a part, gives an inheritance to the Son. That, that which Jesus already possesses as the second person of the Trinity is given by the three-in-one to him as the God-man. His becoming man and giving up his position to do so does not put him in a position of an underling. He still is God and still has the full inheritance as the Son of God. That which he gave up for our salvation is promised and restored fully in him. You can trust him. You can know that he has all the power, all the authority. No matter what we face, if we will recognize him as Lord. And so the next statement is that all that he owns, all that he possesses, he created. We read here, through the Son, he created the universe. That was stated in that passage from John chapter 1. For John writes in that first chapter of his gospel, that God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. Paul writes of this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. Everything was created through him and for him. Jesus is the creator God along with the Father and the Spirit. Now think about it. When you look around, in this beautiful time of spring and summer close by, and we see all rising up afresh and and creation kind of coming to life again in some ways. Who do you think of? Mother Nature? <laughs> Father Time? I mean, all these weird things we come up with. Jesus. Give glory to Jesus. All has been created through Him and for Him. This creation was through him and for him. As I think about that, I think of the wonder of it all, that the one who created it, the one who created the wood for that cross, hung on it, <laughs> right? The one who created the air that we breathe, the ability to function as a human, became one of us. He created it for himself, not just for himself, but that he himself could become one of us. 
that he could take care of the need that we have. He created it for himself, but also for you and me, because that's what he had to do. He was obedient. He did it all. Praise to the Son. There is none like him. He is superior to all. Next we read that the Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus the Son. The word radiates, interestingly, is found only here in this particular text in the whole New Testament, the Greek word here. It means intense brightness. The Word, Jesus, the Son, radiates God's glory intently bright. He is the light of the world. He is brighter than anything created. His glory was limited as a human, but now lights all of heaven. Jesus in his prayer in John 17, if you recall, stated, Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. And we read in Revelation that all of heaven will be illuminated by the brilliance of the sun. S-O-N. John says, he saw the Son of Man, and his face was like the sun, S-U-N, in all its brilliance. Revelation 1.16. And in Revelation 22.5 we read, there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun. For the Lord God will shine on them. Jesus is the light of the world. We are brought from darkness to light in Him. And He expresses the very character of God. We can know who God is because He is revealed to us in Jesus. In our earlier studies of the or the um, upper room is discourse. If you recall, Philip asked a question to Jesus to show us the Father. And Jesus said to Philip in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And just earlier, it's kind of interesting that Philip asked that question because just a little bit earlier in John 12, 45, Jesus says this, when you see me, you are seeing the one who sent me. I have come as a light to shine in this dark world, so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. Man, the brilliance and radiance of the sun shows us the wonder of God and his love for us. The Son is superior. It is the only way to see the Father and the only way to the Father. And he holds everything together. And that's what the writer here leads into. And as he says, the Son sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. Colossians 1.17 says that Jesus holds all things together. You know, I don't often think of the importance of things being held together. I just kind of get up in the morning and do my thing. You know, I breathe the air that keeps me alive, that is perfectly set as far as the combination of oxygen and hydrogen and all the things that I need. Okay, I don't think about it being there and sustaining. Okay, I don't think about somebody keeping it that way. 
I, uh, I take for granted the regular movement of the parts of the universe, the regularity of the seasons, gravity. <laughs> We're not floating away, right? Light and darkness. And the other day, I, I noticed the corn and soybeans coming up in the fields around our house. And I said to Betty, you know, every year I really am in wonder that a dead seed put in the ground produces crops that provide us with food. It is pretty amazing. Who came up with that? Well, I already know. I mean, if I really stop, even though I take those things for granted, if I really stop and think about it, I realize that Jesus is the sustainer of all things. You know, and as I thought about that, I was convicted. I thought, I don't praise him enough. I don't give him the credit that's due. I don't say, Jesus, thank you, <laughs> when I notice those things, enough. Now, I do sometimes, but not enough. He's deserving of far more than that. He is the sustainer of all things. It's not through the efforts of humanity that this world is held together. Now, I do believe that environmentally, we have a responsibility before God to take care of that which he has given us that takes care of us. Okay? I think that there are some who would say, well, any kind of environmental involvement is kind of crazy. I don't know. I don't want to get in a political deal. But I do believe that that's kind of foolish, that we have responsibilities. On the other hand, I have seen people who have become so environmentally involved that they begin to worship the creation rather than the creator. Well, that's not right either. Because the one that sustains everything, I mean, if he's sustaining it, that means he's sustaining it. And even though we mess it up, by the way, we've messed it up a lot, haven't we? Somehow this world is still here. Somehow we're still living. Somehow we're still breathing. I don't think our concerns need to take us to places away from Jesus, but take us to thank him for all that he does and to trust him as the sustainer of this world and all that is. That's the real problem of society. <laughs> now, the writer now moves from revelation and creation to redemption. The message becomes more and more personal for us, and it's a wonderful message, a message of assurance. For we read in this next statement that when he had cleansed us from our sins, and then he goes on to say what took place after that. But I want to pause there. When he had cleansed us from our sins. It's not, maybe he might. <laughs> All right? It's not, he may, if we're good enough, cleanse us from our sins. Or, or we hope maybe it might happen. But the writing is clearly a sentence that indicates completion. When he had cleansed us from our sins. The glory of the Son is not only shown in his role in creation and not in only his sustaining of all creation, but also in bringing salvation to humanity. He is prophet. He is Lord and King. He is also, though, priest. 
representing us in his atoning sacrificial death on the cross. We are saved from our sins by the shed blood of Jesus. We sang some great songs this morning, and I was thinking as I was preparing this about how many songs throughout time have been written trying to respond to what Jesus has done for us. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Right? Jesus has saved us. Hallelujah! What a Savior! That's another song, by the way. Think about how many you've sung throughout your life here at the church that all really point to the fact that Jesus is Savior. That's because He is. That's the superiority of the Son. That's affirmed by the place he has given, also following his death on the cross. And that's where the writer goes next. Because he says, after he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Number six in our list of seven. Son sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of God. In the book of Philippians, uh, Paul writes, Matter of fact, he shares a hymn. It's actually an early Christian hymn that we find in Philippians chapter 2. And in that hymn, we have uh, the verses that speak of Christ humbling himself in obedience to God and dying on the cross. And we read in that passage, Therefore God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, God is spirit. talked about that last week. The idea of him having a right hand is not necessarily that he has a hand like you and I have, but the talk of the right hand of God is speaking of the place of highest honor, right here, right next to him. The right hand represents his authority, his strength, his presence, and his benefit. David prophesies of Jesus the Son In Psalm 110, verse 1, when he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. Jesus is highly exalted. He is in the place at the right hand of the Father. And he intercedes for us there. He he awaits the time when he will return. And he will come to take his rightful place as king and lord of all in this world which we live. It is going to happen. It hasn't happened completely yet. But it will take place. And there will be a day, as we read in Scripture, when every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Unfortunately for many, that will be because they have to not because they have declared in their hearts that they want to. But today, we're not there yet. 
Today, God looks for us to respond appropriately to the Lordship of Christ. So that we, at this point in our lives, already declare that. That you and me already say, Jesus is Lord. And that we confess with our tongues and our hearts and our very lives that he is the superior one. And we allow him to be Lord of our lives. So that we might not fear that day, but yearn for it and look for his appearing. That leads us to the seventh statement about the superiority of the Son. Uh, this is verse 4, which really will lead us into the rest of chapter 1, which we'll get to next week. But we read here that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their name. Certainly in the past, God had spoken to people through angels. Even in the preparation of the birth of Jesus, the angels spoke, right? And many times throughout the scriptures we find that. But it's making it very clear here that Jesus is greater than the angels. The name angel means messenger. And the author here is pointing out, and he will take extra time in these next verses that we'll find next week, to clearly say that Jesus is not another angel. I don't know if this is prevalent today, but I can remember 20 to 30 years ago when it just seemed like there was so much talk about angels. There was a TV show, wasn't there about it? Yeah, it was on Sunday night. Yeah, it was, uh, it was fun. I liked the show. But you know, there, there was a danger. I remember doing a message or two with the congregation I was serving at that time about the concern of placing angels and our faith in angels at the place where only Jesus deserves to be. It's interesting how easily humanity is swayed. It's, all, you know, it's our failure. It's our sin problem. It's, it's the fact that we're all messed up. <laughs> and, and there's a tendency to try to avoid Jesus and his name. And, and we'll find anything we can to put faith in. That really is not adequate. It's a sham. The angels would clearly tell you that they are not at the place of Jesus. Now, the fallen angels will try to tell you something else. That's some of our struggle as we have spiritual wrestling going on. But clearly, as we get to the book of Revelation, as we get to other passages of Scripture, even in what we read here in Hebrews, that the angels are proclaiming the superiority of Jesus. Jesus is greater than any created being. The angels are created beings. He is the creator of them. He's created all that is. He's far greater than the angels. He is Yeshua, the one who saves. Remember, the angel told Joseph, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So as we begin this study of Hebrews, just in these four short verses, we hear God speaking to us through his word. And we hear him speaking to us 
even as he says here, through his Son. Jesus, God made human, is the Word of God for us. He is Lord of all. He is Creator, sustainer of all that is. He owns it all. He brings light into darkness. He died on the cross for our sins and is in the position of highest authority at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He is far greater than angels. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Which begs the question, is he your Lord? Will you acknowledge him today? Maybe the first time, but even if you have before, we need to acknowledge him again and again. Bowing down to him, allowing him to rule our lives, committing ourselves to him and his rule in our lives. As we read in this passage in Romans 10, verse 9, that if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Today, later today, many of you have signed up for a banquet to celebrate 100 years at this church. Not you being here 100 years, but maybe me, I don't know. But yeah. But you know, even as we celebrate 100 years, it's only 100 out of all the many, many years, of course, of, of humanity. But, but just think about it, 100 years of God's faithfulness. But what's our scripture? Did you read it again? Let your roots grow down into him. And let your lives be built Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and it will overflow with thankfulness. Dear friends, it's all in him. I was at a meeting yesterday of China Outreach Ministry Board. We were discussing the changes in the geopolitical system and how that could change the ministry. And one of the statements that came up that day was, what are our what are the things that we will refuse to see change? And I couldn't help but say, we're about the kingdom of God. We're about people coming to know Jesus. That's one thing that cannot change. There is no other savior. Methods change. Ways we do it change, but dear friends, thank God, thank God that this church for a hundred years has lifted up Jesus Christ. He is Lord. Let us commit ourselves and this church to never, ever leave that truth. Amen? We thank you, Jesus, for you. (laughs) 
We thank you that you are the one who brings us eternal life. We thank you that you are Lord and King, creator, sustainer, that in you we have all that we need. Forgive us where we have, we've tried to live life without you. How silly, how silly that is. So again today, whether first time or anew, again and again, we declare you as Lord of our lives. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for sustaining us. And we look forward to the day when you will return and set up your kingdom in fullness. We praise you, Jesus. Amen. Please stand with us.
hope your experience today is the same as mine. That Jesus has made himself very real to me afresh today. I need it. That's why we gather weekly in Bible study, wherever it might be. We need to stay close to the one who sustains us. Our very hope for all time. As we go from here, let's go with that refreshment that he's given us.